BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the Metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly... Patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Welcome to the Science of Success. Introducing your host, Matt Bodner. Welcome to the Science of Success, the number one evidence-based growth podcast on the internet with more than 5 million downloads and listeners in over 100 countries. You know, we've been doing this show for more than four years and we've had so many amazing, incredible, and exciting guests on the show. It's a pity that we never bring back and share some of those amazing episodes and interviews. And so from time to time, we love to sprinkle in and bring back some of our all-time favorites from the archives. In this episode, we're bringing back our interview with Dr. Tal Ben-Shahar, where we discuss the paradox of happiness, why pursuing it makes you less happy, and what you can do about it, while we dig into all of the research about what really makes you happy. Are you a fan of the show and have you been enjoying the content that we put together for you? If you have, I would love it if you signed up for our email list. We have some amazing content on there along with a really great free course that we put a ton of time into called How to Create Time for What Matters Most in Your Life. If that sounds exciting and interesting and you want a bunch of other free goodies and giveaways along with that, just go to successpodcast.com You can sign up right on the homepage. That's successpodcast.com. Or if you're on your phone right now, all you have to do is text the word SMARTER, that's S-M-A-R-T-E-R, to the number 44222. In our previous interview, we discussed modern work and why it's become exhausting and dissatisfying and why it doesn't have to be that way. We shared strategies for defeating burnout and making progress on the most important and meaningful things in your work with our previous guest, Bruce Daisley. Now, for our interview from the archives with Tal. Today, we have another amazing guest on the show, Tal Ben-Shahar. Tal created the most popular course in Harvard University's history. He's the best-selling author of several books, including The Pursuit of Perfect, Happier, Choose the Life You Want, 
even happier. He's also the co-founder and chief learning officer of the Whole Being Institute, Potential Life, Mative, and Happier TV. Tao, welcome to the Science of Success. Thank you, Matt. Great to be here. Well, we're very excited to have you on here. For listeners who may not be familiar with you, tell us a little bit about your background and your story. So, you know, I actually started off my college career as a computer science major. I was at Harvard at the time, and I found myself in my second year doing very well academically, doing well in sports, athletics. I played squash, uh, doing well socially, and yet being very unhappy. And it didn't make sense to me because looking at my life from the outside, things looked great. But from the inside, it didn't feel that way. And I remember waking up on very cold Boston morning, going to my academic advisor and telling her that I'm switching course. And she said, what to? And I said, well, I'm leaving computer science and moving over to philosophy and psychology. And she said, why? And I said, because I have two questions. First question is, why aren't I happy? Second question is, how can I become happier? And it's with these two questions that I then went on to get my undergraduate as well as graduate degrees, all the time focusing how can I help myself, individuals, couples, organizations lead happier lives. One of the concepts that, that you've shared in the past is, and you've described it a couple of different ways, but one of them is, is kind of this idea of a hamburger model and the four different archetypes. I'd love for you to sort of describe that and share that with our listeners. Sure. So, you know, one of the first things that I realized when I started to study philosophy and psychology was that I was actually living life in a very far from an optimal way. I was living life that was actually making me unhappy. And I remember one day going to the hamburger joint and looking at my burger and realizing that there's a great deal we can learn from hamburgers. So for example, you know, there is the very tasty and unhealthy burger, which many of us, you know, love, eat, and, and then feel guilty about. There is the vegetarian burger that perhaps is very healthy, but that is not very tasty. Then there is the burger that is neither tasty nor healthy. And then we have the ideal burger. That is the burger that is both healthy and tasty. And I thought about these four kinds of burgers as being parallel to four ways, four different ways of living our lives. So, you know, the unhealthy and the tasty burger would be that of the, the hedonist, you know, a person who thinks about their immediate pleasure, but don't think of their long-term well-being. You know, that's not happiness. That's perhaps short-term well-being, but it's not happiness. Then there is the burger that's, you know, like the vegetarian burger, which is, you know, healthy, but not tasty. That's about thinking of the future, but not enjoying the present, not enjoying the moment. Then there is the third burger, which is neither tasty nor healthy. And that, you know, we're all sometimes in a rut, having bad experiences and not really feeling like we're going anywhere. So that's the, you know, the worst of all burgers. And finally, there is what I've come to call the happiness burger, the healthy and tasty. That's when we're having experiences that are both pleasurable, enjoyable, and are also good for us for the long term. And in many ways, we can look at all happy experiences through this lens. So for example, if I'm working at a place where, where I'm enjoying my work, where I experience pleasure, and it's, it's meaningful to me, it's important, you know, I can see a, a long-term trajectory in the workplace, well, then I'm in a happy workplace. Or if I'm in a relationship where I'm enjoying the time I spend with my partner and 
we're building a life together. There's also future benefit. You know, the, the relationship is a healthy relationship. Well, that's the happy relationship. So almost every experience we can situate in one of the four hamburger types. Again, the unhealthy and tasty, the healthy and not tasty, the not healthy and not tasty, and finally the happiness burger, which is both healthy and tasty. And what we want to do is as much as possible live our lives in that fourth archetype. It's not possible to be there all the time, but it's certainly possible to be there more of the time. And the more time we spend there, the happier we are. So I'd love to dig into how do we spend more time in that kind of fourth archetype, the happiness archetype. Maybe before we dip into that, how do you define happiness? So based on that model, I define happiness as a combination between meaning and pleasure or between future benefit and present benefit. You see, there are many people who define happiness as just an ongoing experience of pleasure, but don't really think about the meaning part, about the future part. Then there are other people who say, well, no, this is all about, you know, hedonism and, and what happiness really is, is about having a sense of meaning and purpose, long-term benefit. Well, neither definitions are sufficient as I see it, and again, there's a lot of empirical data backing this up. What happiness is about, the good life is about the ability to bring the two together, to bring the present benefit, the pleasure component, and the future benefit, the meaning component. And so how do we spend more time in that happiness quadrant? You know, the, the first thing is awareness. You know, the best predictor of uh, future behavior is past behavior. So if I'm able to identify times in my life when I was leading a happy life, when I was having happy experiences, in other words, when I was doing things that were both meaningful and pleasurable, then I can simply ask myself, okay, so how can I have more of it? Or, you know, what did my partner and I do when we experienced uh, happy periods in our lives? What did I do at work or what work was I engaged in that brought a sense of meaning and pleasure to my life? And then the question is, how can I have more of it? So first of all, it's awareness and then the willingness and the desire to replicate the good experiences. So that's one way of bringing more happiness to my life. There are other ways. So we know, for example, what are the kind of things that bring us more meaning and pleasure in life? One of those things, for instance, relationships, you know, the number one predictor of happiness is quality time we spend with people we care about and who care about us. So, of course, not all relationships contribute to happiness. There are also toxic relationships. But if you look at the happiest people in the world, the thing that defines their lives are relationships. And what kind of relationships? That varies. You know, for some people, it's intimate friendships. For other people, it's their romantic relationships. For others, it's family. For some, it's all of the above. But whatever the kind of relationship, this is the defining characteristic of the happiest people we know of. And that's a finding that's you know found again and again in the research, right? That's not just kind of an opinion. That's something that's very validated from the science itself. Absolutely. So let me give you just a couple of examples. So the first interesting line of research looks at the happiness levels of nations. So the question was, what are the happiest countries in the world? And there are various organizations from the UN to Gallup that ask this question. And the countries that consistently appear 
in the top 10 of the list are countries like Denmark and Australia and Colombia and Israel, Holland, Costa Rica. You know, and when you look at these countries, you know, some of them you would expect to be there. Yeah, Australia, of course, you know, the kind of life that we believe that most Australians lead, you know, is, is a happy life. You know, a lot of uh, sports and activity and they seem like a happy bunch. Denmark, yes, understandable. But Israel and Colombia, I mean, these two countries consistently appear at the top of the happiest nations in the world list. And yet you wouldn't expect that, you know, both Colombia and Israel have their fair share of, of challenges. So the question is why these countries are not others, why these countries and not countries like the US or Germany or the UK or Singapore or Korea or Japan, why? And, you know, the first thing that we know is that, well, money has very little to do with it. Yes, if countries are poor, they're unlikely to be happy countries. The population there is likely to be unhappy where there is poverty. But beyond the basic levels, beyond the basic levels of income, when there is enough food and basic shelter, additional money turns out not to make a difference to happiness levels, which explains why the wealthiest countries in the world are not the happiest countries in the world. What does make a difference? Relationships. In all the countries that I mentioned before, whether it's Denmark or Israel or Australia or Colombia, there is a real emphasis on cultivating intimate, healthy social network. Now, what does that look like? Well, in countries like Colombia, for example, the family is high on the value list. In Israel, same thing, friendships as well. In countries like Denmark, uh, social relationships are emphasized. You know that in Denmark, for example, 93% of the population it's almost everyone, 93% of the population are members of social clubs, whether it's their active members of social clubs, it could be their, their church or their sports club or whatever it is. Uh, relationships are a priority. So this is one line of research that points to the importance of relationship. And another one is the by now very well known Harvard study, which looked at Harvard graduates over a period of, well, for the past more than 70 years, again, most of them are no longer alive, and also looked at an equal number of men from poor neighborhoods. And what they looked for was, you know, who are the people who are the happiest among them? And the single factor that came out, close, supportive social relationships, the number one predictor of happiness. That's amazing. And it's fascinating that, you know, whether you're looking at kind of individual experiences or, or, or nations as a whole, you see the same kind of conclusion borne out in the data. Yes. You know, this is one of the most robust findings in the field. And by the way, it's not just happiness. It's also very much associated with health. So people's immune systems are actually a lot stronger when they enjoy healthy social support. And I think there's a book called Blue Zones that, that came out a couple of years ago that delved into these kind of areas around the globe where people lived the longest. And one of the major factors there as well was a support of social networks. Yes. So very often we see a high correlation between happiness levels and health. So for example, we know that people who are optimistic on average live eight to nine years longer 
than people who are pessimistic. Of course, optimism is closely associated with happiness. And what we see in the blue zones are relatively happy people and very healthy people. And why are they happier? Well, there's some interesting, interesting findings. One of them, absolutely strong social support, whether it's friendships or families, sometimes both. The other things that we see in the blue zones that are also associated with happiness is they're physically active. You know, they don't have gyms in those places. And again, these places are places such as, you know, Sardinia in Italy or Linda Loma just outside of Los Angeles or a place in Costa Rica or Okinawa in Japan or a Greek island. And what's unique about these places is that they're physically active. They don't have gyms necessarily, but but they walk a lot or they work the fields. So this is another thing that's associated with both health and happiness. And there's some fascinating research here beyond the blue zones about physical exercise. For example, regular physical exercises as little as 30 minutes, three times a week. You know, that's not that much. 30 minutes, three times a week. In terms of its impact on our psychological well-being, it's equal to our most powerful psychiatric medication. In dealing with anxiety or depression, it also helps a great deal with attention deficit disorder. Not to mention the great benefits for physical health against chronic disease and so on. Now, the reason why physical exercise works so well is because what it does, it releases certain chemicals such as norepinephrine, serotonin, and dopamine. You know, these are your feel-good chemicals in the brain, and it functions in exactly the same way as our antidepressants do, and I should add, without side effects or without negative side effects. This doesn't mean that we can get rid of all the psychiatric medication or encourage those who are on them to stop. Not at all. Many people who take psychiatric medication really need it. And very often they need it just in order to get out of the house and begin to exercise. But the important thing to realize here is that physical exercise is very important, not just for our physical well-being, also for our psychological well-being. I think exercise is, is so critical. And, you know, I'm a huge fan of doing cardio multiple times a week and not at all for the health benefits, purely for the psychological reasons. And I kind of view the health benefits as almost a positive side effect of what I consider sort of primarily a psychological intervention. Yes, exactly. And I often say to my students that even though I know a lot about positive psychology and I know the techniques and uh, tools and, and obviously I apply them to my life as well, if physical exercise was taken away from me, I don't think I would be able to lead a happy, healthy, and fulfilling life. I think that is a central component, certainly for me, of happiness. So what causes people to fall out of the happiness quadrant? Yeah, so there are a few things. You know, one of the things actually that paradoxically takes people out of happiness is their direct pursuit of happiness. So interestingly, there is research showing that people whose primary goal is to be happy, they end up being less happy. They end up being frustrated and they experience more painful emotions. The problem there is that, you know, on one hand, if you directly pursue happiness, you become less happy. But on the other hand, we know how important happiness is. You know, the benefits to happiness are not simply in that it feels good to feel good. You know, people who increase their levels of happiness are, as I mentioned earlier, healthier. They're also more creative, more likely to think outside the box. 
There are better partners, better team players in the workplace. They have more energy. They get more done. They're more productive. So there are numerous benefits to happiness beyond the fact that, you know, we all want to feel good. So we have a problem that on the one hand, we know happiness is good. But on the other hand, we know if we pursue happiness, it actually makes us less happy. So what do we do about that? The way to resolve the seeming contradiction or this impasse is to pursue happiness indirectly. What does this mean? It means that we look at the ingredients of happiness and the components that lead to happiness. For example, if I know that relationships lead to happiness, well, then one of the objectives that I can set for myself is to cultivate healthy relationships, to spend, you know, an extra hour a week with my, you know, BFF, to think more about how I can improve my relationship with my partner or whatever it is. So to pursue relationships, and if I pursue relationships, that will indirectly lead to more happiness or to think about now, how can I exercise more or better? You know, what kind of exercise contributes to my well-being? You know, for some people, dance is the best form of exercise. For other people, it's the meditative nature of swimming. So, you know, find exercise and persist. You know, we know that another thing that contributes to happiness is a sense of meaning and purpose. So how can I find or how can I engage in things that, for me, provide a sense of meaning and purpose. So I'm not pursuing happiness directly. What I'm doing is I'm engaging in those activities or implementing those ideas that I know will contribute to happiness. Because just saying, you know, I want to be happier and I'm going to pursue happiness, you know, that's amorphous, that's too abstract. And it actually just leads to frustration rather than happiness. And that's why it's important to study the field in order to break down happiness into its essential components. One way to understand it is to look at happiness as the sunlight. Now, to look at the sunlight is difficult. It's even unhealthy. It's not possible for a long time. However, if I break down the sunlight, then I get the spectrum of colors. I get the rainbow. And that I can look at, that I can savor and enjoy and benefit from. So it's breaking down that sunlight into its components. It's breaking down happiness into its components and pursuing those. And I've heard you talk about before that, you know, upon hearing that you lecture and have written extensively about happiness, people often ask you, are you happy all the time? I'd love to hear kind of your answer to that and how you think about that. Sure. So, you know, another barrier to happiness is the expectation that we will be or even can be happy all the time. And so I remember when I was teaching my first class in positive psychology, I was having lunch in one of the undergraduate dorms at Harvard when a student came over and asked me if he can join me for lunch. And, and I said, sure. And then he said to me, you know, tell my roommates are taking your class. And I said, great. And then he said to me, but you know, tell now that you're teaching a class on happiness, you've got to be careful. And I said, I said, why? And he said, tell, you've got to watch out. And I said, why? And he said, because tell, if I see you unhappy, I'll tell my roommates. Now, suggesting that, of course, I'm ought to be happy all the time, given that I'm 
teaching a class on happiness. And, you know, I told my students the next day in class, the last thing in the world I want you to believe is that I experienced constant happiness or that you, by the end of the year, will always be happy. Because there are only two kinds of people who do not experience painful emotions like sadness or anxiety or anger or envy or disappointment. Two kinds of people who do not experience painful emotions. And the first kind are the psychopaths. The second kind are dead people. And, you know, I told my class and I tell this to myself as well, you know, the fact that we experience painful emotions, it's actually a good sign. It means that we're not psychopaths and we're alive. And, you know, it's a good place to start. We can really build on that. And in fact, when we do not allow ourselves to experience the full gamut of human emotions, including anger and sadness and envy and anxiety, if we don't allow ourselves to experience these emotions, these emotions actually strengthen, they fortify, and they become more dominant. It's when I give myself what I've come to call the permission to be human, when I allow myself to experience the full range of human emotions, that's when I open myself up a, to these emotions leaving my system and B, opening myself up to also more pleasurable emotions such as joy, happiness, love, and so on. So paradoxically, it's when I do not give myself the permission to experience anxiety and anger and sadness. That's when I experience more anxiety, anger, and sadness. And when I give myself the permission to experience these emotions, that's when I'm more likely to experience happiness. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. I'd love to dig into that a little bit more and the kind of what happens when someone tries to suppress their negative emotions. No, so let's do a quick experiment, you know, so if you know, you're listening to this interview, do this experiment for the next 10 seconds. Do not think of a pink elephant. Do not think of a pink elephant. All right, five more seconds not to think of a pink elephant. Now, I bet you almost everyone listening thought of a pink elephant. Why? Because when we try to suppress a natural phenomenon, such as visualizing the word that we're hearing, that phenomenon only intensifies. And just like we can't suppress the seeing or thinking of a pink elephant, we cannot suppress the experience of painful emotions. And when I tell myself, do not experience anxiety, do not experience anger, then Anger and anxiety will only intensify, will grow. In contrast, when I simply give myself the permission to experience these emotions, okay, so I'm anxious, okay, so I'm angry. Oh, wow, I'm not a psychopath and I'm human. These emotions actually lose their hold on me and they flow right through me.
And when they flow right through me, when this set of emotion flows right through me, it means that other emotions such as joy and pleasure can also flow freely through me. And correct me if I'm wrong, but is this kind of the same concept that you talk about of active acceptance? Yes. So, you know, when I talk about acceptance and permission to be human, I don't mean passively accepting these emotions. In other words, I don't mean, okay, well, I'm just angry or anxious or sad, so I'm going to do nothing, just vegetate in front of the TV. No, what I'm talking about is accepting these emotions, experiencing them, and then asking myself, okay, what can I do now in order to feel better? But only after I've accepted and experienced these emotions. Now, how long do I accept and experience them for? Well, that depends. You know, if, for example, I've just lost someone who's dear to me, well, then I, I need a fair amount of time to just, you know, be sad, to just, you know, cry, to just talk about the painful emotions. If I just got a, you know, a poor grade on an exam, well, I need some time, but less time than I would if I've, you know, lost someone dear to me. So, it, you know, it's contextual. But sometime is always necessary to experience the emotion and then to ask, what can I do now? And what can I do now could be, well, maybe I should go for a run or go out and dance with my friends or watch TV. But that is as a second step after the first step, which is full acceptance, full surrender to the emotions, whatever they are. I like the inclusion of, of surrender in there as well. And, and I think this is something that I've personally a lesson I've personally learned really deeply over the last year or two is when you accept these emotions instead of fighting them and, and trying to bury them or hide them, it's really powerful how much you know better you feel and how much more effectively you can deal with them. Yeah. So the idea of surrender, you know, when people, especially in the West, when we talk about the word surrender or surrendering to emotions, we immediately see it as associated with giving up, of course. And that is by necessity, something which is bad, which is necessary. You know, we're all about never giving up and, you know, giving the good fight and, you know, stand up straight. And that's not always the right approach. Yeah, maybe it's the right approach when we're playing a sport or when we have a, a real challenge at work, but it's not the right approach when we are facing emotional difficulties. When we face emotional difficulties, sometimes the opposite is what we need to do. It's not to you know, to try harder, it's actually to let go. It's not to stand up straight. It could be just, you know, to lie down. It's not to fight. It's rather to surrender. And these are more sound, better, more helpful responses to difficult emotional experiences. I'd love to segue into talking about perfectionism. And I know that's something you've written a lot about that's very related to these topics. Tell me a little bit about, you know, your take on perfectionism. Right. So perfectionism essentially is an unhealthy fear of failure, an unhealthy, you know, extreme, sometimes obsessive fear of failure that permeates those areas in our lives that are most important to us. So you know, if, if I can give a personal example, when I was a professional squash player, you know, losing a game was an absolute disaster or even having a practice, which was not, you know, a practice session, which was not perfect. You know, that was an absolute disaster. Or, you know, later on, it was when I was a student, perfectionism you know, permeated my academic experience, at least for the first two years. 
And when I started to study psychology, you know, very quickly I realized, first of all, that I was a perfectionist. And, and second, the consequences of perfectionism. You know, we, we're all unhappy when we fail. You know, it doesn't feel good to fail. But there are very different kinds of responses. You know, one response, the perfectionist response, this is awful, this is terrible. You know, I'm never going to succeed again. You know, I'm a complete failure. A healthier approach is, okay, I failed. It's not pleasant, not fun. But what, what can I learn from it? How can I move forward? How can I go ahead? You know, what, what's the upside of failure? You know, if, if, you, if you listen to many of the most successful people in the world, they would tell you that the most helpful experiences that they had over the years were experiences of failure when they learned from it and grew as a result. And that's the much healthier approach to failure. Now, when I talk about failure, I mean it in the broad sense. Also, uh, we can look at a painful emotion as a form of failure because a perfectionist, one form of perfectionist, is the person who wants to have just a perfect, unbroken chain of pleasurable, positive emotions. Now, that's of course not possible. And then when the perfectionist experiences a painful emotion, that immediately is a disaster and he enters or she enters a downward spiral of self-criticism, very often self-hate, and of course, unhappiness as a result. So how do we, you know, for somebody that, that is kind of caught in one of those cycles or, or has very unrealistic expectations about kind of their happiness and their well-being, how do they deal with that or how do they break out of that cycle? Yeah, so, so there are a few ways. You know, the first is really understanding what perfectionism is and, and distinguishing between, you know, healthy perfectionism and unhealthy perfectionism. You know, so often when people are asked in interviews, so tell me your shortcomings. And very often would people say, oh, I'm a perfectionist. And of course, you know, they, they talk about it as a shortcoming, but actually what they mean, well, you can trust me. You know, I get things done really well. I make sure I'm a responsible person. You know, I make sure things are done perfectly. So they're saying it as, as a shortcoming, as, as a problem, but actually they mean it as something that they're, you know, somewhat proud of. And, you know, being responsible and being hardworking and being persistent and reliable, these are positive traits by and large. So there is this part of perfectionism, which is not bad, which is actually good. But there is another part of perfectionism, which is harmful, which is harmful to, first of all, happiness, but second, also to creativity, to relationships, because if I'm a perfectionist, I cannot hear criticism. And if you cannot hear criticism and you're not open to other people, you know, what kind of, I mean, intimate relationships are almost impossible. And there is very little learning when there is perfectionism because there is a reluctance to admit imperfections, to admit that I don't know. So there are two kinds of perfectionism, you know, what psychologists call the adaptive and the maladaptive perfectionism. So first thing is to be able to understand what kind of perfectionism do I want to get rid of or do I want to make less dominant in my life? Second, the ways to make it less dominant, less pervasive is paradoxically by failing more. You see, one of the reasons why perfectionists are so afraid of failure is because they have elevated failure to a larger than life status. And, you know, they don't fail much. And then in their minds, failure becomes this potential catastrophe. Whereas if we fail a lot by putting ourselves on the line time and time again, after a while, we see, oh, you know, the world didn't come to an end after this failure and neither after this failure. And, you know, in a sense, we get used to failing. We begin to get used to being imperfect. And over time, we become more comfortable failing. So that's one way. Another way, 
which indirectly helps a great deal is actually meditation. Because what is meditation? Meditation is learning to be present, learning to be in the here and now. And when I'm present to an experience, to any experience, whether it's the experience of sadness or the experience of failure, it becomes less difficult to tolerate. I learn to live with it. And then I realize, hey, that's actually not that bad. Not only is it not that bad, I actually learned a lot by being present to this experience. So there's no need to fear it happening again. And I become less of a perfectionist then. I'd love to explore the interplay between stress and recovery. And I'd love to kind of get your thoughts on that. Sure. So one of the things that over the last few years have become very clear through the research is that for years and decades, psychologists, professionals, as well as lay people have looked at stress in the wrong way. You know, so if you ask most people, conventional wisdom today would tell you that stress is bad, that what we need to do is eliminate stress, get rid of it, or at the very least minimize it in our lives because it's associated with chronic disease, with uh, unhappiness, with depression and anxiety, you name it. You know, stress is the culprit. Well, it actually turns out that not only is stress not the culprit, that actually stress potentially is good for us. How come? Look at this analogy. So you go to the gym and you lift weights. What are you doing to your muscles? You're stressing your muscles. Now, is that a bad thing? Of course not. You lift weights and you become stronger. You stress your muscles two days later and, and you become even stronger and on and on. And you become fitter, stronger, healthier, happier. Stress, not a bad thing, actually, potentially a good thing. When do the problems begin in the gym? The problems in the gym begin when you lift weights and a minute later you lift more weights and then you increase the weightage and the following day you go in and again you push yourself again and again and again. That's when the problems begin. That's when you get injured. That's when you get weaker rather than stronger. The problem, therefore, when it comes to stress is that we don't have enough recovery. In the gym, if you have enough recovery, you get stronger through the stress. The same happens on the psychological level, not just on the physiological level. On the psychological level, we can deal with stress. We're good at it. You know, we were created, whether it's by God or evolution, we were created to be able to deal with stress. The problem is that we don't have enough recovery today. You know, the difference between 5,000 years ago or even 50 years ago and today is that in the past, there was much more time, many more opportunities for recovery. Today, there isn't because we're on most of the time. You know, there's a wonderful book by Harvard professor Leslie Perlow called Sleeping with Your Smartphone. You know, it has become our most intimate companion. And we're on it constantly. You know, we're available constantly instead of switching off, instead of taking time for recovery, whether it's a meal with our friends or family, or whether it's going to the gym, or whether it's just going for a walk you know, in the streets or even better, the woods. These forms of recovery are so very important for us to reset the system in a sense. And just like we need recovery in the gym, we need recovery in life. And the stress today, the problem with stress today is that people don't have enough times to recover. If they do have times to recover, that stress can only make us stronger, happier, and healthier. How do we build or find more time for recovery? Unfortunately, we can't find more time. You know, we have a finite amount of time. But what we can do is 
put time aside for what we think is really important. And recovery is really important. And it's not giving up time. You know, recovery is a form of investment. So when I invest, if I invest money, yes, I'm in a sense giving up money, but I'm giving up money for the sake of future gains so that I have more of it in the future. And in the same way with recovery, yes, I'm putting some time aside for recovery when I'm not working, for instance, but I'm actually getting much more in return because in the time after I recover, I will be a lot more productive, a lot more creative, and of course, happier. So recovery is a good investment. And recovery, again, it's whether it's, you know, 15 minutes of meditation or an hour in the gym or just hanging out for a couple of hours with friends. And recovery is also a good night's sleep. A lot of research on the importance of sleep for well-being and for cognitive functioning. It could be a day or two off over the weekend and recovery can be the vacation, the week or four week holiday once or twice a year. So all these forms of recovery are great forms of investment. I get much more in return. I'd love to talk about, we've examined a couple of the different kind of mind-body interventions to deal with anxiety and stress. We talked about exercise, how important that is. We've touched briefly on meditation. One of the other things you've talked about is the power of breathing. And I'd love to hear some of your insights. Sure. So there's, again, a lot of work, a lot of research on breathing. And the nice thing about it is that it's always there for us, you know, literally from the moment we're born until the moment we die. And we need to make better use of this thing that's right under our very noses. And what does it mean to make use of breathing? Because, you know, we breathe, we breathe naturally. And again, we always do it. But there are helpful and unhelpful forms of breathing. So for instance, when stress levels rise and when we don't have enough recovery, our breathing actually becomes shorter, shallower. We don't take a deep breath in. Now, it's very easy to simply decide, you know, to set our you know, alarm clock or smartphone to remind us, say every two hours to take three or four or five deep breaths or to spend, you know, 10 minutes first thing in the morning, just breathing in deeply and and focusing on the breath going in and out. And we're benefiting then from both breathing and it's a form of meditation as well. Now, what is proper breathing? It's breathing like, like a baby would breathe. You know, when you watch a baby breathing, you see their, their belly go up and down, up and down. This is called belly breath. And engaging in belly breathing, again, three to four deep breaths every hour or two, and maybe a couple of minutes in the morning and a couple of minutes more in, in the evening, that can go a long way as a form of recovery, as a form of taking in sufficient oxygen, as a form of changing our experience from the fight or flight response, a stressful response, to what Herbert Benson from Harvard Medical School calls the relaxation response. And again, it doesn't take much. It's a very simple intervention that's with us all the time. I, as a ritual, engage in in deep breathing a few times a day, and and that has done wonders to my overall experience of well-being. I'd love to touch on, on rituals. You just mentioned that, you know, what are some of the rituals that you found kind of daily that have really helped you cultivate well-being and happiness? Yeah. So first of all, maybe I can just say a couple of words about the importance of rituals because many people 
think that if they understand something, so for example, I understand the importance of exercise or I understand the importance of breathing or the importance of relationships, well, then that's enough to bring about change. You know, I've had the aha moment, you know, I was convinced by study, research, and now I'm ready to live happily ever after. Well, unfortunately, that's not the case. Knowing what's good for us doesn't mean that we're doing what's good for us and and doing is necessary for bringing about real change. Rather than relying on knowing or understanding, what we must rely on to bring about lasting change are rituals, our habits. John Dryden, the British philosopher, poet, once wrote, we first make our habits and then our habits make us. And it's important to make habits, to create rituals that will contribute to our well-being. So let me share with you some of the rituals, some of the daily or weekly rituals that I have. So, you know, one of them is physical exercise three times a week on particular days, particular times I exercise. For me, it's usually a stationary bike or swimming. Three days a week, I do yoga. Every morning when I get up, I spend between 10 and 12 minutes deep breathing while reminding myself of the things that I want to be reminded. For example, I remind myself, and this is all written down, I remind myself to be present. I remind myself to bring more playfulness to my work, to my family. You know, I I remind myself to contribute, to help others and cultivate a healthy relationship. I remind myself to be patient. And finally, I remind myself to give myself the permission to be human to be humble about myself, my life, my expectations. Now, these things I remind myself of every day. They're already second nature. You know, I've, I've formed neural pathways in my brain around these ideas that, that I believe are so important for a happy, healthy, and fulfilling life. And it's only by engaging in a ritual around them that they can become second nature, they can be assimilated, internalized. And finally, another ritual that I have before going to bed is expressing gratitude for at least five things in my life. That's such a great exposition about rituals. And I love that quote, we first make our habits and then our habits make us. That's, it's, it's really powerful. I'd love to dig in to the concept, and, and, and this, this goes back a little bit to kind of when we were talking about perfectionism and the permission to be human. I'd love to talk about self-forgiveness. Can you share some of your thoughts about that? Sure. So, you know, the Dalai Lama, when he came to the West for the first time, interviewed many Western scientists, psychologists, practitioners, theoreticians. And one of the most surprising things that he found was that compassion, the word compassion in in the West stands for compassion towards other people. He said in Tibetan, the word for compassion is tsewe. And Tsewa is equally about compassion toward others and towards oneself. You know, we're very hard with ourselves. You know, that has a lot to do with perfectionism or is a cause of perfectionism. You know, we're, we're not forgiving. We don't give ourselves the permission to experience painful emotions or to fail to be human. And unfortunately, that's a cause of a great deal of unhappiness. You know, there's no one who's perfect. Uh, no one ever was or ever will be. And the sooner we accept that, the better, the more forgiving we are of our imperfections or of our failures, the happier and paradoxically, the more successful 
will be in the long term. For somebody who's been listening and wants to have kind of a concrete starting place to implement some of the ideas that we've talked about today, what's sort of one simple piece of homework that you would give to one of our listeners? Yes. So what I would do first, you know, we are potentially the best teachers that we have. So what I would do is I would sit down and I would write. I would write about my best experiences from the past. When was I at my happiest? And from those stories that I write down, I would extract what I consider the essentials. You know, and keep in mind all the things that that you heard about permission to be human and about relationships and about exercise and about expressing gratitude and try and extract the essentials. In other words, do research on yourself or rather, you know, what I, I distinguish between research and search. Research is very often about other people. Search is within oneself. And for people who want to learn more about you, where can people find you and your books online? Well, my books are on Amazon, or you can go into my website, www.talbenshahar.com. Well, Tal, thank you so much. This has been a fascinating conversation, and I know I've taken away a ton of insights, and I think the listeners are really, really going to enjoy this. So we just wanted to say thank you so much for being on the show. Well, thank you, Matt, for the opportunity. Thank you so much for listening to The Science of Success. We created the show to help you, our listeners, master evidence-based growth. I love hearing from listeners. If you want to reach out, share your story, or just say hi, shoot me an email. My email is matt at successpodcast.com. That's M-A-T-T at successpodcast.com. I'd love to hear from you, and I read and respond to every single listener email. I'm going to give you three reasons why you should sign up for our email list today by going to successpodcast.com, signing up right on the homepage. There's some incredible stuff that's only available to those on the email list, so be sure to sign up, including an exclusive curated weekly email from us called Mindset Monday, which is short, simple, filled with articles, stories, things that we found interesting and fascinating in the world of evidence-based growth in the last week. Next, you're getting an exclusive chance to shape the show, including voting on guests, submitting your own personal questions that we'll ask guests on air, and much more. Lastly, you're going to get a free guide we created based on listener demand, our most popular guide, which is called How to Organize and Remember Everything. You can get it completely for free, along with another surprise bonus guide by signing up and joining the email list today. Again, you can do that at successpodcast.com, sign up right at the homepage, or If you're on the go, just text the word SMARTER, S-M-A-R-T-E-R, to the number 44222. Remember, the greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to a friend, either live or online. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us an awesome review and subscribe on iTunes because that helps boost the algorithm that helps us move up the iTunes rankings and helps more people discover the science of success. Don't forget, if you want to get all the incredible information we talk about in the show, links, transcripts, everything we discuss, and much more, be sure to check out our show notes. You can get those at successpodcast.com. Just hit the show notes button right at the top. Thanks again, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Science of Success.